Uh, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor here at Bethany Church, and we are learning how to do church in such different ways uh, using Facebook Live. Uh, there's 11 people in the room uh, with me today, me plus 10, so I think we're more or less legal, and I promise you everybody's socially distanced. So we're fine. Nobody's sitting close to each other, but we have had a great time. I wish you could be here. Um, Christy and team, thanks so much for leading us. They'll come and bring us a song at the end. And so we're, we're working out some of the, our, our uh, technical side and, and learning things. And um, as we participate uh, in the live stream, I would just encourage you to, you know, have a Bible with you. Um, Participate When we're praying, pray with us. When we're singing, sing with us so that you really have that sense of, of gathering together. Well, as we have kind of wondered what to do with this season of uh, kind of an interruption to our regular schedule, uh, we decided, hey, I'm going to take you through a book of the Bible that we rarely look at from a Sunday morning perspective and um, wanna, we're going to take a few uh, few weeks in this in before and after Easter as we unpack, you know, a, a situation that was a national crisis and how people responded to that. So if you want to find the book of Esther with me, um, it's it's just before the Psalms. So if you go open your Bible right in the middle, you'd land in Psalms. If you go to the left, you get to the book of Job. And then one more book to the left, you're going to be in the book of Esther. Esther is kind of, um, it's a unique book in that um uh well it's it's a narrative it's a story there's no mention of god in the whole book of esther and yet it's a profound moment we've just come through the season of uh purim in uh, in for the for the jews they've got a festival called purim and they've just celebrated that and it comes out of this this book and so I'm going to just make a couple of comments about the setting. Then I'm going to try to read and summarize the first three chapters and then take a couple of things we can pull out of this today. This is set in the Persian Empire. Uh, so in the kind of early 5th century before Christ. The Persians followed the Babylonians. Persians were a massive... Um, a massive empire. In fact, I've got a map here just to show you uh, where this, how their empire stretched all the way from Egypt, Ethiopia, from what's modern day Turkey, all through the Middle East, all the way through what would today be Iraq, Iran, the main where it says media and where I've circled Susa. That's Iran. That would where the story takes place. Yeah, that's Iran today and then off even further east uh, from that. So massive, massive empire and the the Persians had a tendency to let whatever place they conquered, they would allow them to maintain their culture, their language. Uh, they were quite benevolent in that sense, but they had developed. Um, they, we can thank the Persians for really developing, um, you know, UPS and FedEx because they really established great trade routes and, and messaging routes way back. And if you go, for example, to uh, Turkey today, uh, you can go to where the, the Royal Road starts. Then it would, they could just get in a matter of days, they could get from what would be Sardis uh, all the way to Susa, the capital. So very effective, well-run uh, empire. And this chapter or this book is really based on some Jews who would have been, their families were exported, exiled from Israel in when it was under the control of the Babylonians, you know, a hundred years prior. But by the time we're reading this book, Jews have been repatriated to Israel. They're back in Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. Many Jews have gone back, but many Jews stayed in the places where they'd settled as exiles. They built businesses. They established families. They bought property. They, they just developed a life 
and all these communities in different places. And to this day, there's, you know, the Jews are in these different places um, today, just as back then. And so we're dealing with some some folks who were quite well set into their local culture. And um, and we're going to see how they sort of rediscover their their ethnic roots. So I'm going to take you into the to uh, chapter one, two, and three of Esther, and I'm going to read little bits, and then I'll try to summarize because it's a kind of a lot that we're trying to cover in a short period of time today. So let me start in Esther chapter one. It begins this way: It says, "These events happened in the days of King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus is another way to say his name, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia, or, or Kush." At that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. And he invited all the military officers of Persia and Media, as well as all the princes and nobles of the provinces. And the celebration lasted 180 days, a tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. And when it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were in the fortress of Zuza. And it lasted for seven days and was withheld in the courtyard of the palace garden. And he goes on to describe the courtyard was beautifully decorated and so on. Just lavish banquet. Just elaborate and, and oh, just over the top decoration. And as they celebrated this feast, the wine was flowing. I mean, it was a nonstop open bar for seven days and people drank copious amounts of alcohol. And we're told that Queen Vashti also uh, held a banquet for the women of the empire. So it's quite a celebration. You've got the six-month kind of exhibition, and then they go kind of world expo, and then it goes into this feast. Now, what happens is that day seven of the feast, uh, King Xerxes is very drunk, and he's got all his royal buddies there with him, and he says, hey, get my queen out here. We want to all have a look at her. And so he calls for Queen Vashti, but Queen Vashti refuses to come. She says, no, I'm not going there. Those bunch of pigs, I'm not going there. I'm not, I'm not going in front of those, you know, those pervs. I'm not doing that. I'm staying where I am. And, and well, the king is enraged. How dare she, you know, refuse an order of the king? And so he quickly grab, grab, uh, gathers his, his top seven advisors and they say, what, what should I do? What, what am I going to do about this? And they're like, oh, this cannot stand. And here's the rash, the reasoning. I mean, this just sounds quite preposterous to today, but, but they say, if she gets away with this, every wife in the kingdom is going to defy her husband and you'll have chaos and women are going to like take over. And they're like, well, that can't happen. And so he, they, they make this decision to banish her, re- depose her as queen, and she's never allowed to come back. Now they don't kill her. And there's some secular kind of parallel sources that suggest that Queen Vashti herself was quite, uh, quite the evil queen and quite violent and vicious herself. So maybe she got what she deserved. But anyway, she's banished and that's the end uh, of her and the end of chapter one. Chapter 2 begins this way, but after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. And so his personal attendants suggested, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king and let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Haggai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they are all given beauty treatments and after that, the young woman who pleases the king 
most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. And this advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. Now we're about to meet kind of the two main character, two of the main characters in our story. Verse five says, at that time there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jer, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin, descendant of Kish and Shimei. His family had been among those who, with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And this man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was called, also called Esther. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. Okay, so what's happening here? Um, Xerxes is, is miserable. He's lonely. He, he wants his woman back. And so they, they come up with this plan that they're going to kind of put on this big beauty contest. Um, you know, empire-wide beauty contest. Now, Esther, um, under Mordecai's direction, enters the contest. We're not told if she entered willingly or if she was forced into it, but she enters the contest. And these these two are from kind of Hebrew nobility. They were part of, they were descended from Saul, King Saul's family line, the first king of Israel. And so they're kind of a prominent family. They've established themselves. Remember, we're a hundred years into the exile. These are not captives anymore. These are not slaves. They've really established themselves well in this culture. He's got a position in that. It appears he's got a position in the in the um, in the palace there, and uh, they've both got Persian names. Um, you know, remember Persia is the equivalent of Iran today. They've got Persian names, um, and so they're they're also looking for ways to have some influence and maybe even some power. And so, what happens is the story goes on is. Uh, Esther enters this sort of season of beauty treatment. It says in verse 12, before each young woman was taken to the king's uh, bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, six months with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. Let me just say something, ladies. Just imagine a 12-month spa. You get the best of the best. All the best oils, the best ointments, the best perfumes. You're just pampered. You're just treated right. I mean, In spite of what's to come, I mean, you definitely are being beautied up to the max. And um, Xerxes goes to Greece. He's on a three-year military campaign. It's a failed campaign. He comes. That's not in in the text, but we know that from parallel sources. He comes back and he's ready for a queen, and he calls uh, for women. And so Esther says, "Hey," says to the the guy running the show, says, "Just." Tell me what to wear, tell me how to dress, tell me which perfumes to go, and that's what I'll do. And so she goes, meets the king, and sure enough, the king just falls for her and says, she's the one. And he, uh, he chooses, chooses her. And then, uh, and, and so now she's the queen. Now, Mordecai is, we're told he sits at the gate of the city, which means, or sits at the gate of the palace, which means he has a, a position of some influence there. And we're told at the end of chapter 2 that one day as Mordecai was on duty at the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bictana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Mordecai um, and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and gave the information to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were impaled on a sharpened pole. Um, this is all recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. Now, that's a little piece of foreshadowing that's going to come handy uh, 
in the next week or the week after. All right, so uh, this is what's happened in chapter 2. One more chapter. Chapter 3 begins this way, that sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamadath of the Agagite, over all the other nobles, making him the most powerful official in the empire. And all the king's officials would bow before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded. But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. And the palace officials at the gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but he refused to comply. And so they spoke to Haman about this to see if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct, since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. Now what's happened is Mordecai has finally revealed his ethnic identity, but Esther has not yet revealed hers. And Haman... Now, Haman, here's a little detail. Haman was descended probably from King Agag of the Amalekites. That was a group that King Saul, Mordecai's ancestor, was supposed to kill and never did. And there's been this centuries-long blood feud between these families. And now Haman finally has a chance to get his his end to the Jews. And he's not just going to kill Mordecai. He makes a plan, comes up with a way... Uh, kind of negotiates and navigates away with the king that he they create an edict that every Jew in the entire empire is going to be annihilated, is going to be killed. And so a law is made that on a coming day, you know, Haman calls for the lots to be cast and they determine a certain day, 10 or 11 months in the future, is going to be a perfect time for them to gather uh, in, across the empire and they're going to say you can legally kill every Jew you find, male, female, man, woman, child, and you can take their stuff on this and such and such a day. And and that's the decision that's been made um, by Haman because he's so enraged at Mordecai. And at the very end of the chapter, it says that Haman and Xerxes sat down for a drink and the city of Susa is in confusion. It's a crazy moment for these people. In one day, their entire future is... Uh, threatened and, and, and put on hold. All right, the basic message of this whole book is this. You've got this lovely young woman. She finds herself in a position of influence and in a moment of crisis will risk her life to save her people. And likewise, God may use any of us in any position uh, of influence to save the lives of many if we'll speak up. That's the Sunday school version of the story. But let's be honest, um, this story isn't exactly G-rated. I mean, just in the first few chapters, we've got, we've got human trafficking, we've got female objectification, we've got copious consumption of alcohol, we've got violent anti-Semitism, we've got an assassination plot, we've got, you know, cunning manipulation. It's all there in this, in this book. And there are some serious morality pro- problems uh, ahead in this book. And yet, this book is in the Bible. It's here for a reason. Everything in God's word is there intentionally. So my question is, what could we grasp from this in our own moment of national crisis? And I want to give you three just kind of little takeaways for today that hopefully will will help you. Uh, this book is just, if you're just to read it for the drama of it, it's a, it's a wild read. I mean, it's an exciting, dramatic read. But but beyond kind of the irony and the, the twists and turns in the story, there's something we can put our hope in, each of us, and it's this, that you can trust the invisible hand of God. You can trust the invisible hand of God. It's, like I said, it's one of actually only two books in the Bible that don't mention God's name, and yet, 
God is at work, especially through Mordecai and Esther, Jews who had blended into their culture, right? It's not like they were acting as missionaries in this pagan world, and yet God's going to work through them. And throughout human history, let's remember that God has overseen the rise and the fall of nations and empires. God has been at work. Nothing takes him by surprise. And he's working always on behalf of his own people, working for those who trust him. We just sang about it in this song. And so in the book of Esther, we see that you can trust the invisible hand of God. Yeah, but what about Christians who suffer persecution today? What about all the limits on religion in places like China and Cuba and Iran and many other nations of the world where, where it's, it's literally dangerous to be a believer in Jesus, to follow Christ. It could end certainly your business, if not your life. God's people have suffered in the past, continue to suffer today, and yet what's happening? That even through their suffering, more and more people uh, will come to Christ. God's name is made known. God is still at work even in those even in those sufferings. And right now in our COVID-19 uh, situation, it may seem uh, to you that, that God is far from us. You think, where is God? Like, what's going on? It seems like things are collapsing. And let's be honest, it might. Things might collapse. It might take years to recover the economy. Some of you might have to start fresh building a business or, or, or your savings or whatever it is. But I just, we just need to keep reminding each other that God is working all things out for His glory and for the good of His kingdom. That's how God's working. And, and look, there is a tiny, tiny chance that you're going to contract this illness. I get that. But some of you are really going to hurt economically, financially from the shutdown. And yet, here we are singing that God is good, that He's done great things. That he's faithful because that's what's true. So the question is, what's God up to? How's he going to meet your needs? How's God working? How will God use you in this time to make his name known? How will the church grow and shine in this time? You can trust the invisible hand of God. All right, two more little things, uh, two little takeaways out of here. And, um, because there's an exciting part of this that I, I think is super encouraging. And that's it's that ready or not, you're part of the plan. Ready or not, you are part of the plan. Uh, now think about this. Mordecai and Esther, these are not particularly religious people. right? They, might, they may actually have been just trying to use this beauty contest to gain some influence, kind of get an inside track at the palace. It's, it's possible. I mean, they haven't forgotten their ethnicity, but they're not public about it. They haven't forgotten that they're Hebrews, that they're God's chosen people, but they're very, very quiet about their, about their heritage. They're ordinary citizens. Esther was an orphan. Mordecai had some kind of position in the bureaucracy there. He might even have been a eunuch. There's some that think that. I don't know if I want to explain what that is here, but kids, you can ask your parents. That'll be a fun conversation. Um, that's really mean, isn't it? Sorry, parents, but. Cats out of the bag. Um, it's only this crisis that pushes them to the choice. Be silent or speak up. What are they going to do? Be silent or speak up. And, and, and I, we, let's be real. You and I probably don't feel like we have much to offer the world, especially right now. We're just trying to figure out how to get by on a day-to-day basis. You're at a, your workplace, you're just kind of quickly getting up to speed with all the technology so you can work from home or you're kind of scrambling as a parent to try to navigate your kids through school at home or whatever your situation is. Uh, you know, maybe you feel like 
I'm, I'm spiritually weak. I don't really have anything. I don't really know anything in the Bible. I don't, you know, I don't really know how to pray. I don't know all that kind of Jesus stuff. I'm not very good at that. Right? Maybe that's how you're feeling right now. You look around, you see, well, there's pastors and there's, there's people who really know what they're doing. And listen, God is willing and able to work through you, through you. God's willing and able to work through you, starting with your very level of faith, even if it's that small. And, and starting with your, your level of practice right now. Ready or not, you're part of God's plan to save people, to make His name known. No need to argue with God. Don't say, I'm not ready or, you know, I'm too messed up or I don't know enough. Don't make excuses. God loves you and He'll include you in His work if you'll let Him. But by the end of Esther chapter 3, honestly, things look really, really bad. Terrifying, actually. If you're a Jew, it looks hopeless. But listen, this is the thing you need to know. The bad news is not the end of your story. The bad news is not the end of your story. Things were so hopeless. The law was written. They were going to be annihilated. The entire force, uh, the force of the entire empire was against them. And you wonder, is there any way that little Mordecai and Esther can make a difference? Well, that's what we're going to, that's what we're going to look at next week. Could they make a difference? And, uh, but I want to leave you with this. In this moment, you may be facing some real uncertainty in your life. Financially, medically, right? Socially, relationally, whatever your scenario is. It seems like there's no way around it. You're just, you're not sure. I don't even know what we're going to do. I can't even figure this out. And I'm just exhausted from trying to figure all these things out. But the bad news is not where the story is going to end. Your bad news is not the whole story. Here's the truth. God loves you. God loves you. He created you. He invites you to trust in Him. You're not perfect. Nobody is. And, and according to, to God, according to His Word, you and I are all sinners in deserving judgment. So what's going to happen? We face the same annihilation that Esther and Mordecai's people did. But just like God is going to use Esther as a redeemer for her people, God sent a redeemer from you. A redeemer means someone who buys back from destruction, who saves you from the brink, who brings you back to life. And that redeemer is Jesus, the Son of God, who died for your sin and rose again to give you eternal life. All for those who would trust in Him. You can find hope today. You can find peace today. Beginning with this simple prayer. If you've never come to that place of yielding your life to Jesus, it's so simple, I call it the ABC. To admit, ad- Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I need saving. To be, believe. Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God, that you died for my sin and that you rose again. And see, to commit, Jesus, I commit my life to you. I confess that I need saving. And I commit my life to follow you all my days. To admit, to believe, and commit, that's where it begins. Christy and the team are going to lead us in a closing song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me, as we just declare that whatever's going on right now, I don't have to take all the pressure of being the problem solver. I can trust Jesus to work His life through me. God, we're just grateful for this moment with You. And Lord, You're, you're working. We trust Your invisible hand. God, I think that you can use any of us and you're willing to use any of us in your plan. 
And God, I, I praise you that even whatever bad news someone's facing today, that's not the end of their story. Lord, just help them to grab hold of that today. It's not the end of their story. Just praise you for that. Friend, if you want to give your life to Jesus, remember, you just pray, Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I, I, I need saving. I, Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. You died for my sin and rose again. And Jesus, I commit to follow you all my days. If you pray a prayer like that with us today, would you just let us know? We can follow up and help you with that. If you're in your living room right now, uh, if you're able, I invite you just to stand and sing with us as we sing this closing song.